How did this guy get a security clearance? The lead starts right now. The Air National Guardsman accused of stealing and sharing a treasure trove of classified documents appears in court, and the government says he has a history of threatening to kill people. Then dozens of Americans trapped in Sudan begging the U.S. government to help them get out. So why do U.S. officials say they can't help, even though other countries are carrying out evacuations? Plus, tears, smiles, and laughs. Brittany Griner holds her first news conference since her release from a Russian prison. I'm never going overseas to play again unless I'm representing my country uh, at the Olympics. What the basketball star had to say about her game and the other Americans still being wrongfully detained in Russia. Welcome to The Lead, everyone. I'm Bianca Rodriguez in for Jake Tapper. We start today with our national lead. This afternoon, the man accused of leaking classified U.S. intelligence on the Internet appeared in court, where a judge decided that the suspect will stay behind bars, at least for now. Prosecutors argued that 21-year-old Jack Teixeira still poses a threat to the community, not only because of how many documents he allegedly accessed, but because of a trove of weapons they found in his room during a search and his alleged history of violent threats. Prosecutors also raised concerns that Teixeira might try to exchange some of the information he accessed while serving in the Air National Guard with a foreign country in exchange for helping escape the U.S. CNN's Jason Carroll starts us off from Worcester, Massachusetts, where Teixeira's lawyers argued prosecutors are exaggerating the risk their client poses to the U.S. The detention hearing got underway with Jack Teixeira's father first taking the stand. He told the court he would not hesitate to report his son if he was released on bail in his custody and broke any rules the court imposed. The defense argued that 21-year-old Air National Guardsman is not a flight risk nor a security risk and that Teixeira did not intend for the classified information to go beyond the chat room where he had shared it. Judge Hennessy challenged that notion. Someone under the age of 30 has no idea they put something on the Internet that could end up anywhere in the world? Seriously? He had no idea that would go beyond the little people on the server? That is like someone arguing, I pulled the trigger, but I had no intent to kill him. Prosecutors argue Teixeira could still have access to hundreds of documents. The defense filing asserts Teixeira no longer has access to those documents, saying prosecutors are exaggerating their client's threat. Court documents filed by the U.S. Attorney's Office Wednesday argue Teixeira should not be released on bail. Prosecutors claim the information Teixeira allegedly accessed far exceeds what has been disclosed on the Internet. The filing also includes pictures from the search warrant executed on Teixeira's bedroom. The photos show a gun locker next to his bed containing multiple weapons, including an AK-style high-capacity weapon, handguns, shotgun rifles, and a gas mask. Prosecutors say law enforcement also found a smashed tablet, laptop, and a gaming console in a dumpster at the home. Prosecutors say Teixeira also obstructed justice by telling those he was communicating with online to delete all messages. And if anyone comes looking, don't tell them expletive. Also alleging he, quote, deleted the social media server where he posted government information and procured a new phone number and email address. Prosecutors also questioned why Teixeira was a candidate for the Air National Guard, given his history surrounding guns. 
The court document states in 2018 he was suspended while in high school after a classmate allegedly overheard him making remarks about guns and racial threats. That same year, prosecutors say he applied for a firearms ID card but was denied due to the concerns of the local police department over the defendant's remarks at his high school. The prosecution adding he is no longer the small child sitting at a big desk with big computers. He is also not the person he described himself to be in a letter to the police officer when seeking a firearms permit. So at the end of the hearing, Judge Magistrate David Hennessy did not issue a ruling. He took all the arguments under advisement. He is likely to issue some sort of a written ruling at one certain point, uh, uncertain when that will be. In the meantime, Teixeira remains behind bars. Biana. All right, Jason Carroll in Massachusetts for us. Thank you so much. I want to bring in CNN Chief Law Enforcement and Intelligence Analyst John Miller for more on this. So, John, the first question I have to ask is how does someone with this troubling of a background who couldn't even get a weapons license because of the threats that he had made end up being accepted into the Air National Guard? Well, he couldn't get a license because of the threatening statements that Jason told us about. Um, but the Air, the Air National Guard needs people. Um, he went through the clearance process. They did a background investigation. And one of the great difficulties when you have somebody who's 18 years old is, you know, when they did my background investigation, they had to go back 40 years, foreign travel associates, anybody I ever lived with. Uh, when you have an 18-year-old kid, it's like, what do your parents say about you? They say you're great. You know, they interview two friends, and they usually get their names from you and maybe a teacher. And he didn't have much history. So that actually turned around to help him get the weapon. Well, clearly, no, we know how troubled he really was. Also troubling is the fact that this information was posted online much earlier than we had originally thought. We thought that it was back in December. That was initially reported. Now this we were hearing it's back in February, basically at the time the war began. Is that an alarm for the U.S. government in general? That's a double-edged sword. The U.S. intelligence services that monitor any leaks of classified documents are actually legally barred from going on the Internet and spying on Americans and their communications unless they have, you know, a case. Um, in this case, there's also all kinds of classified documents floating around on the Internet, usually stuff that was classified and is now declassified, Freedom of Information Act, stuff from the 9-11 Commission. So it's sometimes hard to recognize what's still classified that's out there. That said, the level of sensitivity of these documents and the period of time they were out there, the fact that somebody, a reporter, another member of the military, somebody just browsing around didn't run into it and recognize it as extraordinarily sensitive is kind of amazing. What do you make of the prosecution's argument that they believe he is a flight risk? And in fact, they think that another foreign adversary, perhaps wanting access to some more information he may still have, will go out of their way to try to bring him out of the United States. And thus, they argue he should remain behind bars. Is that far-fetched or do you think that could be a reality? You know, you could say it's far-fetched. He's a kid. You know, what access does he have to the world of international spies? But there's a lot we still don't know. And I refer you to Edward Snowden, yeah. living happily ever after in Russia as a guest of the government um, after leaking some of the most sensitive programs in the U.S. government, um, it is, it is, the, the possibility of it happening is not zero. Snowden was just awarded a Russian citizenship last year as well. John Miller, thank you so no. much.
Well, now to our world lead, where the shaky U.S. brokered ceasefire in Sudan is set to expire in just under two hours. And an extension of the truce has been agreed to by one of the warring rival militaries. Meanwhile, at least 18 countries have carried out their own successful citizen evacuations. Even war-torn Ukraine managed to get 91 of its citizens out. Despite those achievements, American officials maintain that a mission to evacuate U.S. citizens stuck there is just too dangerous. CNN's Kylie Atwood spoke to Americans with family in Sudan, aching for them to get out safely. Never in a million years did I imagine that as American citizens, my parents would be left to fend for themselves in a war zone. Muna Dowd describes the harrowing story of her parents, American citizens, trying to make their way out of Sudan. After a 12-hour bus ride from Khartoum to Port Sudan, during which her father was held up at gunpoint by one of the country's warring armies, they found no support for U.S. citizens. No American presence, no American assistance, no signage anywhere uh, to tell them where to go. Arriving at the gates of this hotel, they showed their U.S. passports, but received no shelter. They told her, no, oh, no, 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 you have to wait. Uh, Without providing lodging, assistance, food, water, my father is running low on his medication that he needs for both his heart uh, condition and his blood pressure. Other travelers have descended upon Sudan's border with Egypt, some finally finding water. But others, including Americans, not so lucky. The wait time at the border is many days. Children are crying um, and they're just laying on the ground. It's a desert. They're stuck at the border. There's no water. There's no food. The border is essentially a humanitarian crisis. Um, And they're not the only Americans who are facing this issue. Ahmad and Layla are an American couple living in California. Like Muna, they're deeply frustrated by the lack of U.S. government support in these dangerous and complex conditions, as they've tried to assist their parents escape. We contacted them on numerous occasions, asking for just bare minimum help. Just let us know, if you are going to help us, Please let us know you are going to help us. Help us. U.S. officials say it's more dangerous to carry out a government-led evacuation from the country right now than to have American citizens join the overland caravans. We're in contact with um, Americans who have registered with us uh, in one way or another and very uh, active contact. But Dowd paints a different picture. The only communication was to somehow make your way to Port Sudan um, because that seemed kind of very vague. Um, And it seems like different people, uh, different Americans are getting different information. And in recent days, many other countries around the world, including the UK, India and Germany, have flown their citizens out of the country. I'm just appalled and frankly disgusted that European nations are able to coordinate evacuations of their citizens. But somehow Americans are left to fend for themselves. And Kylie joins us now. So, Kylie, what are U.S. officials explaining to you as to why they can't fly U.S. citizens out, those who want to leave at least, while we're seeing numerous other countries doing so successfully? Well, listen, they're not really giving a clear answer to that question. When we heard from the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, earlier today, he talked about overland routes 
being the best way to have an enduring capability to get Americans out of the country. But he didn't explain, you know, why they can't do some of these U.S. government-led evacuations in the meantime as they build up that capacity. We also heard just in the recent hours from the White House spokesperson encouraging Americans to take advantage of options to get out of the country in the next 24 to 48 hours because they don't think that the security situation in the country is going to get any better. But of course, finding those options right now is incredibly challenging and dangerous. Biana, And we'll continue to cover this story. I know you'll be watching it closely. Kylie Atwood at the State Department for us. Thank you. And coming up, back in the game, an emotional day as Brittany Griner holds her first news conference since being released from Russia. Then, a direct appeal to free Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich, one of his close friends, joins us live. A standing ovation in a room full of journalists for WNBA star Brittany Griner. Today was her first news conference since being detained in Russia for nearly 10 months. As CNN's Brian Todd reports, Griner was full of gratitude, smiles, and jokes as she spoke. Brittany Griner unveiling a mural of American detainees held abroad. The 32-year-old American basketball star speaking to the media for the first time since her release from detention in Russia in December. Griner got emotional when asked how she found the resilience to finally speak out. You know, I'm no stranger to, uh, to hard times, so... See, you cried and you made me cry. Um, just digging deep, honestly, you know, uh, you're going to be faced with adversities, um, throughout your life. Uh, this was a pretty big one, but I just kind of relied on my hard work getting through it. Griner was detained for nearly 10 months, much of it in a bleak remote penal colony about 300 miles from Moscow. She'd received a nine-year sentence for drug smuggling after being arrested at a Moscow airport carrying cannabis oil in vape cartridges just before the Ukraine war started. Griner said she'd packed the cartridges by accident. Today, she said during some of her more desolate moments in detention, seeing pictures of her family and images of the efforts to get her out meant everything. It made me a little bit have hope, um, which is a really hard thing to have, a really dangerous thing to have because... You know, when it doesn't work, it's so crushing. And she spoke of what she'd tell Paul Whelan and Evan Gershkovich, two Americans now held in Russia, and all the other wrongfully detained Americans abroad. Uh, stay strong. Keep fighting. Don't give up. Um, just keep waking up. Find a little routine and and stick to that routine and as best you can. I know that's what, what helped me. Asked if she felt guilt for her release after a shorter time in detention than Whelan and some others, Griner said if she could have gotten them out herself, she would have. She pointedly made no specific mention of the conditions she faced in Russian detention, except at one moment. No one should be in those conditions. Like, hands down, no one should be in any of the conditions that I went through or they're going through. Jason Rezaian, the Washington Post writer who was held in Iran for nearly a year and a half, told us about what Griner may be going through emotionally right now. You know, once you've been isolated and confined and having, have, have had choice uh, taken from you for, for that long, um, you know, it's not really natural uh, to, to just kind of come back to freedom. Uh, and then couple that with sort of not being able to understand 
hey, why am I not happier about this? Brittany Griner's news conference also comes as the U.S. today imposed new sanctions on groups in Russia and Iran that are accused of taking Americans hostage or wrongfully detaining them. The, san the sanctions target Russia's Federal Security Service and the intelligence branch of Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps. Brianna? Brian Todd, thank you. Well, today, a new direct appeal for Russia to release American Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich. Three American newspapers took out these full-page ads today, which read in part, quote, We are united in calling for his immediate release. Reporting is not a crime. Over the past month, we have watched our industry not only rally around Evan, but stand up for journalism and the importance of a free press. We also encourage support from the U.S. government, including President Biden and the White House. Well, journalist and close friend of Evan Gershkovich, Polina Ivanova, joins us now. Polina, it's good to see you again. You know, the last time we saw Evan was at last Tuesday's appeals hearing, where he was sadly and unsurprisingly not denied bail. There he was, you see in this picture, he was smiling. He was not allowed to speak with the media. And yet, just as they were being forced out of the room, this moment really stood out to me. Listen. Эван, держись. Выходим. Тебе от всех привет большой. That was an independent Russian journalist, Vasily Polonsky, who was courageous enough to shout out, Stay strong, Evan. Everyone says hi. I was so moved by that moment, and it really did seem like Evan was as well. Polina, what went through your mind when you saw that? Oh, yeah, it was very hard to see him, but also at the same time, um, such a relief. And also, we were all so proud of him to see him standing so strong and so dignified, you know, head held high and really representing us all, standing up not just for his own uh, rights and his own innocence, but also for the right to a free press in Russia. And to have other reporters like Vasily there standing up for him as well. Uh, Russia has denied a U.S. request for a consular visit for Evan next month, and they're claiming that Russian journalists were denied visas for Foreign Minister Lavrov's trip to New York earlier this week. I mean, Polina, prosecutors have yet to produce even one shred of evidence in this case, and there is real concern that his detention will be extended. Do you view this as a form of torture? I mean, Evan has the right to consular access. He has the right to consular access. This isn't some privilege that he is being granted. It doesn't come as a gift from Russian authorities. It's something that he has as a right, and he is being denied that. And um, it only strengthens the argument that he is being used as a political pawn if his care in prison, that his conditions in prison are made dependent on things completely outside of his control. Yeah, and on that point, CNN's Matthew Chance asked Sergey Lavrov about the possibility of a prisoner swap sometime down the road. Lavrov, interestingly enough, did not dismiss that idea. Does that give you hope that Evan and perhaps another American detained Paul Whelan could come home soon? It is heartening um, to hear that kind of language from Russian authorities. It's also heartening to see the solidarity coming from newspaper editors. You mentioned um, the New York Times and, and Washington Post joining the Wall Street Journal editors in solidarity today. Um, we're also seeing the process uh, move quite quickly. We saw him labeled wrongfully detained very swiftly. Mm -hmm. um, this is all very important. So it is heartening to see 
you know, things things moving forward um, on both sides. And that kind of language from the Russian authorities is also is also heartening that there could be um, that they're seeing this in the context of a swap and that they're thinking of that. And for you, Paulina, I know this is very personal as well. You and Evan are very close friends. Uh, You and I have been exchanging messages and I know that you've been in touch with him through letters. Tell us, how is he doing right now? Evan is, uh, yeah, he's writing letters. Um, every time we receive one, it's uh, it's really a joy um, and it's so meaningful. And he is also, in his first letter to us, wrote about how important it is for him to receive these letters. You know, he has reported on stories about political prisoners. He's spoken to political prisoners before and they've told him how much joy uh, it brings to receive letters. And uh, in his first note to us, he he spoke about how you know, it's just a next level happiness to know that the world is watching, to know that people are following his case. He is, um, he's, he's doing well. He uh, has built himself a routine um, to deal with the conditions. Obviously, the conditions are tough. Um, he is reading a lot. Uh, he's exercising a lot. He is, uh, uh, meditates in the mornings. Um, he's really, he's written out this routine for us explaining how he spends his day. He's obviously confined in a very small cell with only an hour a day for um, exercise in a small kind of, in a small open space. Um, but yeah, he's reading in the, in the evenings, he writes letters. He writes a lot in his diary. Um, he's, yeah, he's built up this routine, which is very important for him. A month now behind bars without one shred of evidence. I love seeing the photos of you together with him. It's great to see him smiling in those photos. It was great to see him smiling in court yesterday. It shows his strength and resilience, and we will continue to tell his story until he's released home to his family and friends. Polina Ivanova, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for staying with the story. Of course. And we'll be right back. In our health lead, a woman suing the state of Texas after being denied an abortion told lawmakers that not receiving abortion care greatly harmed her mental health and may prevent her from having children in the future. I wanted to address my senators, Cruz and Cornyn, who I nearly died on their watch. And furthermore, as a result of what happened to me, I may have been robbed of the opportunity to have children in the future. And it's because of the policies that they support. Texas has one of the most restrictive abortion laws in the country, banning abortion at all stages with no exception for rape or incest and narrow exceptions for medical emergencies. And with me now is the woman you just heard from, Amanda Zorowski. She is one of five women suing Texas. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us. I would imagine that was a very difficult day for you yesterday. Um, I know you had complications some 18 weeks into your pregnancy, and you were actually told that your baby, Willow, would not, never survive. But yet you were denied an abortion because she still had a heartbeat and only given an emergency abortion once you went into septic shock. Can you explain how this Texas law made an already devastating experience even worse for you? Yeah, that's right. Um, First of all, thank you so much for having me and for giving space to this story. Um, So, yeah, exactly what you just described is what happened. And because my healthcare team was not allowed to um, intervene and provide the healthcare that I needed, an abortion at that point, I had to wait until I got extremely sick to the point that I almost died. Um, And for me, it took about three days to go from being physically healthy 
to um, going into septic shock, which three days of having to live with the devastating news that you're going to lose your baby and also the fear of what's going to happen next to you was paralyzing. And the anguish and trauma that I had to go through because of the law in Texas was unreasonable and preventable and shouldn't have happened. I'm so sorry that you had to go through this. I'm glad that you're okay. Obviously, though, emotionally, you are still scarred and recovering. It it was notable that your senator yesterday, John Cornyn, suggested that you should sue your doctors for malpractice, but you instead are choosing to sue Texas and the state's attorney general, Ken Paxton. Why take that route? That's exactly right. Um, We don't feel that it was our doctor's fault. Um, She consulted with a team of physicians and specialists, both at the hospital where I um, (laughs) was denied and then eventually received treatment, as well as her colleagues outside of Austin, but still in the state of Texas. And there's a lot of confusion about what the law means. And the way that it's written is so vague that doctors don't know what they can and can't do and what healthcare they can and cannot provide. And if they make the wrong decision, they can face up to 99 years in prison and or lose their license. And so they're afraid to act. And the reason why there's so much confusion is because that's the way the law was written. Um, As a matter of fact, when the Dobbs decision came down, the administration put out language to clarify when women should be able to receive an abortion. And Ken Paxton, the attorney general in the state of Texas, sued over it so that that guidance would be revoked So what happened to me was exactly what he expected and, frankly, wanted to happen. We should let our viewers know that we reached out to Senator Cruz's office, your other senator there in Texas, and have not heard back in terms of a statement from him. You've become a notable name in the fight for abortion rights. I'm just curious, how does it feel to have such a spotlight on you, given what a personal and emotionally grueling experience this was for you? It has been overwhelming. Um, You know, first and foremost, I never wanted to be in this position. I want to be at home right now with my three-month-old baby. Um, That's not the deck of cards that was dealt to me, and so I find myself in a very different position. But I know that there are hundreds and thousands of women, not just in Texas, but across the country, who are experiencing something similar because of these laws that are being passed in states across the country, and they need a voice. And there's a lot of people that cannot speak up. Um, Perhaps they're afraid to. Perhaps they um, don't have the means. They're not comfortable. What I'm doing is not easy. So certainly it's understandable if women don't want to talk about it, but there are so many stories just like mine that need to be told, and it is my honor to represent any pregnant person or anyone who feels the same way I do so that something will change. Well, that definitely took a lot of courage for you to say yesterday. We saw your husband sitting there behind you in support. We wish you all the best in your continued recovery. Amanda Zorowski, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. And still ahead, the woman who says Donald Trump raped her in a department store dressing room faces cross-examination. The notable moments from court. That's next. In 
our politics lead, moments ago, court wrapped in New York City, where E. Jean Carroll, the former magazine columnist accusing Donald Trump of rape, testified for a second day. Today, Trump's defense lawyer questioned details of Carroll's claim that Trump sexually assaulted her in the 1990s. CNN's Kara Scannell is live outside the federal courthouse in Lower Manhattan. And Kara, what more are we learning about today's cross-examination? Well, today, Eugene Carroll's uh, sat through about four hours of cross-examination by Trump's attorney, Joe Tacopina. And during this cross-examination, he sought to poke holes in Carroll's credibility. He also tried to suggest that she was motivated by politics and money. But the real tense moment in this cross-examination came when he focused on the specific allegation when Carroll said that Trump raped her in the Bergdorf Goodman department store dressing room in 1996. He asked her to go through the sequence of events that took place that day, how they ended up from meeting in the lobby, going up the escalator to the sixth floor where the lingerie is, and then ending up in the dressing room where Carol said that Trump pushed her against the wall and raped her. Now, Takapina was going hard at Carol, asking her, you know, why she didn't scream. They spent a lot of time on this question of if this was happening to her, if she was fighting for her life, why she didn't scream. And there, there was a bit of an exchange here, a couple of exchanges. In, in one of them, he's asking her again and again why she didn't scream. And Carol testified, you can't beat me up for not screaming. Takapina said, I'm not beating you up. I'm asking questions, Miss Carol. This continued then for a while. And Carol said, with her voice cracking, I'm telling you, he raped me whether I screamed or not. Then later on in this series of questionings, Takapina said, so you didn't scream while you were getting violently raped because you didn't want to make a scene. Carol said, that's right. That's probably why I didn't scream. He also then was asking her specifics about this encounter, saying she was wearing four-inch heels. How could she fight off Trump in four-inch heels? Carol said she could dance backwards and forwards in four-inch heels. He also asked her why her tights weren't ripped if she was being attacked. She said they were flexible tights, and he asked her about her handbag. She said that she had it in her hand the entire time, and he questioned how that was possible if she was pushing off the former president, who was more than twice her weight. Uh, you know, they also were going back back and forth over why she never reported this attack. And her friend, she, her, one of her friends she talked to, had advised her not to saying that Trump, remember this is back in the 90s when he's the real estate tycoon, the tabloid figure, and her friend advised her that he would bury her. So Takapina asking Carol, now he's the most powerful man in the world at the, as the former president. Now is when you bring this case. And Carol said she was inspired by all the women that came forward in the Harvey Weinstein matter. And that is why she spoke up now. Biana. All right, Kara Scannell, the trial resumes on Monday. Thank you. Well, what is it like to play the mastermind of the greatest political scandals in U.S. history? Actor Justin Thoreau talks to Jake Tapper about playing G. Gordon Liddy. That's next. And our pop lead today, a lighter moment in today's political world. Slip in, get into the filing cabinet, slip out. In. Without anybody knowing. Textbook Blackout. That's from the creators of the new HBO series White House Plumbers with their depiction of the Watergate scandal. HBO and CNN are both owned by Warner Brothers Discovery. The show tells the story of how Howard Hunt and G. Gordon Liddy came up with the plot to bug the Democratic National Committee and accidentally toppled the presidency they were trying to protect. Jake Tapper sat down with the show's director and executive producer, as well as one of the stars of the show. Joining me now is David Mandel, who is the director and executive producer, and Justin Thoreau, who stars as G. Gordon Liddy. 
Um, and, and Dave, you took. We a... never found out what that G stands for. <laughs> I, the, not good. Re, not good research. Yeah, but oh well. Yeah. So you took a very serious moment in history, and you and you made a show about it with a satirical spin. Um, why did you think it was important to, to depict this in a funny way? We didn't depict it in a funny way. It is. It is funny. The more you dig into it, the details are. They're so horrible, they get hilarious. Like they, the fact that it wasn't the first time they tried to break they in. They broke in four times. They got in successfully, planted the bugs, but didn't get any valuable information because they weren't working and had to go in again, and that's when they get caught. You can't make that up. So it's not so much that we were trying to be funny. We just, we're just showing you what happened, and it's, it's you just... I know, we call it a lot. We call it a really funny tragedy. So that's our, those were our watchwords. On okay, the set. I yeah. can see that. Yeah. Uh, and Justin, you play uh, G. Gordon Liddy. Here's a little snapshot of your character. I want you to meet Gordon Liddy, toughest guy I know. He'll hold his hand in the flame of a candle. I do not bend and I do not break. What's the trick? There's a one. Gets third degree burns every time. Please stop. So how would, how would you describe, I mean, G. Gordon Liddy, who, who I believe he's passed away. He is. He's he has passed, passed away. away. Right before production right before started. But yeah. he's, he was le- legitimately a menacing bad guy, but he's hilarious as he depicted him. Well, he's, he's a, I find him, uh, aside from ideologically, I have major differences of with G. Gordon Liddy, but I find him a very endearing sort of charismatic. I kind of have to fall in love with him right. in order to play, to play him. him you yeah. know? Um, but he, I just found him like completely endearing and, and lovely. Um, He's an optimist. I mean, he's actually, I mean, I know it's a tragedy for Hunt and for, for uh, other characters uh, in the Watergate scandal. And the United States of America. And the United States of America, <laughs> but not for G. Gordon Liddy. Like, no. his life kind of, you know, took the, you know, the shape of a hockey stick after he got arrested. You know, he had a successful radio show. He kind of gets everything he wanted. Yeah, he, I mean, he's an optimist. He becomes famous yeah. for being a super spy, but he wasn't. He got arrested and went to jail. Like, he never <laughs> succeeded. But yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe a season two. I mean, maybe <laughs> I know. I mean, was, the I Miami mean, Vice years. He went on to star on a. That's right. He was on an episode Vice. of Miami Vice. I forgot about that. And there's a scene where where your counterpart Howard Hunt is telling you that you're going to need to bend the rules a little bit to succeed. Let's show that. You listen to me, George. You are not a federal agent anymore. You are an intelligence agent. You are a spy. And if you want to succeed in this line of work, you need to be willing to bend the rules, color outside the lines. I have to tell you, I, I know a lot about Watergate. I mean, you know, we have Woodward and Bernstein on the show. We have John Dean on the show. I learned from the show. Did you learn anything? An enormous amount. I mean, we, we obviously all did our, our research, but, you know, and of course we all know this through the lens of, you know, Woodward and Bernstein and how the, you know, dogged journalism and, you know, and following the money, et cetera, et cetera. But the, the, the sort of the main course is like the, is the actual crime, the actual Watergate. That's the gate that started all the gates. And it's kind of, I mean, just hilarious that no one has really thought to pick this enormous, hilarious story up off the ground and start telling it. Um, Dave Mandel did, obviously. But yeah, we learned. <laughs> Until you, yes, yeah. then you did. We, were t- we, we, we laughed about it back at the beginning. In every Watergate show or movie that you've ever seen, there's always those that minute at the top where you right. see flashlights and the tape and everything. And then it's like, men were arrested. And then who were those men? Right. These are the men. It's about the yes. journalism. Yes. It's about the cover-up. It's, it's, it's about, about the John... halls of power. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. But 
men, and there was collateral damage to the, some of their lives and families, and it's the birth of true believerism. I mean, there's, it's just, these guys are fascinating. Yeah. And so, obviously, Watergate is the, the gate, as you say, to start all gates. Um, but this, this show comes at a, at a weird time in our country, and obviously there was just a huge scandal with uh, the attempt to overturn the election and, and the coup. Wait, what? And, and the insurrection. When was this? Did that, did that, it's just coming in over what? my ear. What day was that? Uh, well, this is, this is the place for news. Yeah. Um, did that inform at all how you went about doing this? Was there, were you thinking about Trump and, and the rest? Well, as I think we've all learned, it's, you can't not think about Trump, unfortunately. Right. Um, I'll put it this way. I think in the age of Trump, there was this sort of aspect of Trump where it's like, it's never been like this before, and it's nothing's ever been like this before. And it's not true. I think there is a direct line that you can draw from Watergate right up to Trump. And so we kind of wanted to ring that bell a little bit. There are times where you're hearing them, like Liddy, talk about Democrats, talking about them as like criminals, as like really dangerous people. And you just kind of go... Wait, who, was that 1972 right. or is that yesterday? And there's, I don't know, I found that connection. Again, I, we don't want to hit it too hard, but it's there for the taking. And yeah. you, you met Woodward. Uh, yeah, we met him last night. He came and saw the show. And what was that like? I mean, it's, you know, he's like, you know. nerve-wracking. It was nerve-wracking. Nerve yeah. yeah. You know he's in the audience and, you know, and it's sort of like Caesar. You don't want him to go, Mm. Yeah. And he didn't. He was very generous, very kind, and, yeah. and really loved it. And actually kind of effusive um, with us afterwards. He just sort of he kept going, they were crazier than that. Like, they, you know, <laughs> yeah. he sort of confirmed. He really was just like, you, you captured the, the clown show aspect of it. Like, dangerous, but clown show. And yeah. it was just like, okay, wow. Well, I've seen episode one, and I love it, and I can't wait for the rest. Uh, Justin Thoreau, David Mandel, thank you so much Thanks. for being here. Best of luck with the show. Thank you so much. And you can watch White House Plumbers on HBO, the first episode, coming out on May 1st. An endorsement from Bob Woodward, too. It sounds amazing. Well, back to the top story. A judge considering if the man accused of leaking classified documents should stay behind bars. Wolf Blitzer will be covering this in the next hour on The Situation Room. Two weeks since his arrest, Wolf prosecutors say what Teixeira accessed could far exceed initial reports. This is pretty alarming. Very alarming indeed, Bianca. We're going to be digging into some of the truly stunning revelations about the suspected Pentagon leaker with the former director of national intelligence, James Clapper. Prosecutors are now alleging that Jack Teixeira had a history of violent and racist remarks, including one saying he wanted to kill a ton of people. Yet he was still able, get this, to obtain a top-secret security clearance. I'll ask the director, uh, Director Clapper, how so many incredibly concerning red flags were simply missed. All of that and a lot more coming up. That's next here in the Situation Room. Of course, we'll be watching. Wolf, good to see you. And ahead, remembering the man behind one of the most provocative talk shows ever on TV. And I went to jail. And... and, and In our pop culture lead, Jerry Springer, the former anchor, TV host, and Cincinnati mayor, has died at the age of 79. Springer became a household name with his raucous talk show. For nearly three decades, viewers saw some of the most outrageous arguments among guests. Chairs were thrown, physical confrontations would ensue, and obscene comments would be hurled by sparring couples and audience members. Springer once told CNN that he did not mind being referred to as the grandfather of trash TV. Rest in peace, Jerry Springer. 
Well, our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. Thanks for watching. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.